Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's March 1st, 1982, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Mick Jagger, Pete Townsend, Madonna, David Bowie and the police are not artists you'd expect to be able to sign up to advertise pretty much anything. Yet that's exactly what happened. They all signed up to the promotion that debuted Today in History in 1982, the famous I Want My MTV campaign. Yeah, and the slogan was quite literal as well, because MTV's problem at the time was that very few people had cable at this point in the US, less than 10%. And what channels were available depended on where you lived and what the local cable package provider was offering. So the actual point of the campaign was literally to get people to pester their cable providers to include MTV in their packages so they could watch it. Yeah, some of the commercials actually ended with a call to action from a voiceover which says, if you don't get MTV where you live, call your cable operator and say... I want my MTV. Yeah. <laughs> the problem was convincing cable companies to carry it, in some cases because their conservative parent companies didn't want to be responsible for beaming risque music videos into family homes. And so I want my MTV is essentially a slogan to persuade your friendly local cable conglomerate to take carriage fees from Viacom and put music television onto your telly. It's not very sexy really at all. Yeah, when MTV first launched, it was really a bit of a failure because advertisers couldn't see the audience in it and the music industry saw it as a direct threat to both vinyl and cassette sales and basically balked at the increasing cost of even having to create music videos to promote their artists in the first place. And so basically on the brink of having having to mute the channel forever, MTV executives then brought in legendary ad man George Lois to create a plan to drum up awareness of the brand. And that was how I Want My MTV was born. Yeah, he actually got the idea for the slogan from a previous campaign that MTV did. The first ad campaign that they launched were trade ads targeting the cable providers and advertisers with marketing, which stressed that they had this reach with the coveted youth market who had plenty of money to spend. And there was a line in that ad, which was written by Nancy Podbialnak that said, Rock and roll wasn't enough for them. Now they want their MTV. And Lois saw this and it reminded him of a campaign he had done in the 50s for a cereal brand called Mapo, whose slogan was, I want my Mapo. However, his initial vision was that when the music stars said it, you know, your Mick Jaggers, your Pete Townsends, they should be crying, which was a callback to his <laughs> Mapo campaign, which featured tough sports stars like Mickey Mantle crying for their cereal. And MTV executives were like, 
what? No, obviously we're not going to ask them to do that. So the campaign was ultimately kind of put into the hands of another ad exec, Dale Pon, who exercised the crying element and shaped the iconic ads that the stars would eventually appear in, where they were shouting the slogan, demanding their MTV, not crying for it. But it's funny to reflect on life before August the 1st, 1981, which is when MTV went live because in the 70s if you wanted to watch music on television you basically had to wait until either you had a weekly show which showcased chart music as we talked about in our top of the pops episode or if you liked a really huge band they might appear if you're lucky on the night you happen to tune in to saturday night live or the tonight show now suddenly new music was on tap And that didn't just mean that you got to see your favourite bands, you got to see them in a new visual style that had been tailor-made for teenagers as well, rather than in the kind of stuffy live performance that you'd see on Johnny Carson, which is aimed at your parents and grandparents. This is something that's for you. Yeah, when the station first launched, the first words were, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. That was spoken by John Lack, who was the first chief operating officer of MTV Networks. And then the broadcast continued with, and this is super fitting, the Buggles music video for the song Video Killed the Radio Star. But the station only had 208 music videos to call on. That was the grand total of uh, like videos that had been made at that time. So there really wasn't very much that they could continue with and they had to kind of create these sort of linking segments and and only after it started to gather a bit of momentum did uh, record labels go, actually, I can see the promotional purposes here. Yeah, I mean, given the intended demographic, you know, Gen X, what else was shown on that launch day? It's kind of surprising when you look at the total list. Rod Stewart and Cliff Richard were played multiple times (laughs) over the course of the day. And in fact, British acts benefited disproportionately in the first months, including, in fact, the Buggles. The Buggles were a British act as well because they were used to producing videos for Top of the Pops. Mm. That meant that a lot of British acts already had pre-recorded music videos, not necessarily the most exciting ones, but ready to roll. And it's thought that this is the catalyst for the so-called second British invasion of the 1980s. Acts like Duran Duran and the Rhythmics Culture Club that had success on both sides of the Atlantic came down to the fact that they had this ready-made supply of videos and MTV were like, great, we'll put them on 50 times a day for the first few months. (laughs) And of course, British new romanticism was so much more adventurous than American white rock and roll in the early 1980s, right? I mean, the fact that you have Boy George being broadcast across the United States on a $20 million ad campaign saying, I want my MTV yes. <laughs> in his androgynous gear. It's just, it's sort of unthinkable, isn't it, that, that you know, Jethro Tull would be doing that. It's just <laughs> that that's who they had to work with. They had British acts to work with because they had the music videos. And actually what it meant was, because these cable companies were essentially conservative and didn't want to put rock and roll on, they ended up, when they did put rock and roll on, putting like British gay nightclub rock and roll on. <laughs> in 1978, 7.5% of US households had cable. Ten years later in 1988, it was 52.8%. And MTV was probably, you know, responsible for quite a lot of that, especially because it had become a really valuable alternative to radio for casual exposure. And it really broke the stranglehold that radio networks had on the pop charts. Because until now, if your local radio station was choosing not to play a song, you probably weren't going to hear Yes, and taking radio executives worked really well for MTV's initial strategy. Let's program the videos like we program the radio stations. So they had VJs instead of DJs. They had a focus on what record they'd play at the top of the hour. But what it also meant was that they tried to translate the segregated playlists of mainstream American radio 
into a TV setting. And this became a growing concern such that in 1983, when David Bowie, who, as we've said, had taken part in I Want My MTV as a campaign, sat down to do an interview with one of their VJs, Mark Goodman. He says, It occurred to me that having watched MTV over the last few months, it's a solid enterprise and it's got a lot going for it. I'm just floored by the fact there are so few black artists featured on it. Why is that? (laughs) This is a really (laughs) awkward moment where the VJ, who obviously in part agrees with him, is floundering around trying to come up with a corporate line, which is basically, well, it's like radio. And in America, there are black stations and there are white stations. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, that question from David Bowie did arrive at the time when MTV was in the process of kind of working out that R&B was its future alongside rock. Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1982 had these really revolutionary music videos that went with his songs Billie Jean and Beat It, for example, and really that changed the way MTV imagined itself. It knew from that point onwards that the output of some of those really big stars was able to benefit it as much as it was able to help them build their careers. The reason the record companies in the States just didn't like the idea of MTV to begin with is they needed to see the promotional benefits demonstrated because there was an upfront cost. I mean, the the budget for a Bon Jovi video, for example, in the 1980s was $50,000. They thought that's a lot of money to spend on something that we're then giving content to a network that's going to put adverts between it and monetize it. We're giving them content. They're not paying us. What? Though that said, it didn't take long for everyone to see the benefits. You know, by 1985... I think like the release of Dire Straits Brothers in Arms, which included the song Money for Nothing, the one that features Sting on vocals saying, I want my MTV, is just a real demonstration of how in a very short space of time, that connection between the advertising campaign, the station itself, the artists, and the affiliated sort of social trend of people of people kind of identifying themselves as MTV consumers, and that's like their personality, that had all merged together. And, you know, having two of the biggest acts in the business at the time, acknowledging how huge and influential the network had become, kind of typified that. Although, very weirdly... Um, The golden era of MTV, I think, was over way before cable TV was over as a major Mm. influence. I mean, people think of MTV having abandoned music and running things like Jersey Shore as a 21st century phenomenon. But actually, the real world, their reality show, that was 1992. Yeah, I mean, I think the blurring of the line between a focus on music and a focus on other media started really early. And then, of course, in the 90s, they were leaning increasingly into explicitly non-music programming, but still stuff that targeted that Gen X sensibility, stuff like Beavis and Butthead and Daria. So initially, there was this idea of, well, we're still serving the same audience. And that would kind of become a little bit diluted as time went on, obviously. But they also did serve an interesting purpose in the 80s and 90s because they would insert public information films as well that were intended to connect with that youth audience on topics like safe sex was obviously the AIDS panic era and the dangers of drugs. So it was certainly being used to serve content specifically to that generation at the time. It's just that, yeah, over time that would really start to fall apart as they were kind of grasping around to reach the youth audience, even if it had nothing to do with music. I didn't know Beavis and Butthead was a public service announcement. (laughs) (laughs) You learn something new every day. (laughs) And so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 